Hey everybody, how's it going? Welcome to Jerusalem U's JU Israel the Teacher's Lounge. Do I still have to say Jerusalem U at the beginning? Alan doesn't know. We'll figure it out. Uh, where we keep you in touch with what's going on in Israel and give you insight behind the headlines. I am here. I'm your host, Michael Unterberg. I messed up that sentence, which is like the easiest part of my, this job. Here, as always, <laughs> with co-host Alan Goldman. How's it going, Alan? It's going good, Mike. Uh, Alan, would you introduce our guest this week? This is an interview episode, which we don't have often enough, I feel. It, well, I guess interview, interview, I guess like, uh, okay. Um, so here we're with Jessica Steinberg, an old dear friend uh, who I would call the queen of Israeli culture. Um, who's really been for years following the lifestyle scene in Israel and is now a um, full-time reporter for the Times of Israel following what, what goes on in Israel. In fact, I just saw an article yesterday was about a Palestinian director who just got a big uh, a Hollywood um, gig film that looks actually really good. Uh, um, what's it called? The Mountain Beneath Us. I was just waiting to see when Alan was going to let Jesse talk because <laughs> that was like the super longest introduction ever. <laughs> it's okay. I've known him a long time. Yeah. Right. Fair enough. Fair enough. I could go on. But, yeah, I'll, yeah, yeah. but uh, <laughs> so we really wanted to just like uh, talk to Jessica about um, what's, what's lifestyle. First of all, what's it like to be a lifestyle reporter here and how'd you get into it and what, what's going on in Israel? What's the fun stuff, the exciting stuff going on in Israel? There is always something fun going on in Israel. Despite everything else, Israelis like to have fun. Well, I, I feel also that, like, because obviously this is an English podcast and we get a lot of English speakers, we, even, even people connected to Israel, pro-Israel, Zionist, whatever, don't understand a lot about Israeli culture. So I think that your position is like a great you, – you're a very helpful person for people who want to connect. And I think there's a value in connecting, which also we want to talk about, like, why do you think? So let's start with a little brief self-bio, I guess. Sure. Um, so really nice to be with you guys. I have been living in Israel for 22 years from the New York area um, and working as a reporter the whole time. I used to write about business for Bloomberg News when they first came here and then for Dow Jones and writing about economic reform and high tech and all that jazz. Um when the uh, intif- second intifada broke out in 2000, I kind of switched gears because re- people weren't reading about the business scene as much. And I was stringing for different uh, New York area newspapers like Newsday and New York Times um, and some national magazines from the States and writing about bus bombings and all that kind of stuff. But I eventually, when the intifada sort of toned down, I geared myself out of the business scene. Um, I started writing about more about real estate and then architecture, and then from that went into culture. Um, and I freelanced for a long time, actually, fully uh, fully freelance journalist, writing for, again, papers and magazines in the States. And then when the Times Visual started up in uh, five years ago, 2012, yeah, um, David Harvitz, who's the founder, asked me if I'd like to join the staff, which... I very much did, and I said, but I don't want to write about business or diplomacy or military correspondent. I really just want to write about the culture scene in Israel and what what people do in their leisure time, which Israelis like to do a lot. 
So that's sort of an intro. Well, that early stage in your career when you wrote about business is because that was your interest or that's because where that's where you could get a job? Um, both, I'd say. I made Aliyah in 1995, which seems like a very long time ago. Oh, it was. <laughs> and I... I believe a week before my son was born. I yes, believe, yes. Yes. A very exciting week. <laughs> in very exciting week. Um, and I got very lucky. I first wrote for a kind of... Uh, actually, I, I edited a travel magazine that was in English, but it was very much an Israeli publication called... Eretz magazine still exists. Um, but then very quickly I got this opportunity at Bloomberg. I actually knew very little about writing, about writing for business, but I had an excellent boss and editor who taught me about currency rates and about the stock market. And it was an incredible learning opportunity, both as a new Ola, as a new immigrant. And, um, when you write business features, which is really what I fell into for many years, you, you're writing about what's happening in the country, but you're giving a lot of underlying facts and information that make it based in th- – that sort of give give people a much wider knowledge about what you're talking about. So when we're done recording, you can explain the Manafort uh, indictment to me? Oh, uh, <coughs> of course. Yes, it's in my back pocket. Okay, cool. No, oh, but interesting. You didn't get into the binary stuff on the Times of Israel. Right. So when I was brought up to the Times of Israel, I very much wanted to do lighter cultural stuff. I sometimes dabble and I'll do a business piece. But yes, bi- the binary options is Simona Weinglass, who basically spent a year and a half doing invest- very heavy-duty investigative reporting about the binary options industry, which is a complete scam, and brought it down in the Knesset. Um, that was last week, and we're very proud of her. Yeah, it's one of those journalists. That's a different topic for a different episode, but it's a journalist-driven attack on corruption and bad practices in Israel to make Israel a more moral country. Um, but you, So then why did you draw this line in the sand that you only wanted to do culture stuff when you came to the Times of Israel, if you do have interest in those things? I do, but um, it... You know, when when you've been writing for 25 years, uh, you know, as a journalist, and I am lucky to be a working journalist in 2017, very lucky, um, you, lots of times you might work for, you might work for a paper, you know, I'm a New Yorker, so I think of the New York Times, I think of friends of mine who work at the New York Times, and you might be the New York Times for 30, 40 years, and you'll have different stages, you work in different sections, you're a business writer for, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten years. Um, maybe you are someone who is a correspondent abroad, but then eventually you want to go back to your home country. So you end up in Washington, you end up in New York, you end up covering city politics. You know, there's that's what's cool about being a journalist is that you you stay working in the field, but you can change your beat. It's just a natural career evolution that everybody who works in the industry, not everybody, but most people in the industry do. Yeah, I would say so. Listen, I in my in my spare time, I've started writing kids' books. Uh, which is a totally different kind of writing, not something I ever anticipated doing, and I love it. But it's a very different part of my head. Right. And uh, we should mention Thanksgiving's coming up. So yes. your first yes. published book is about Thanksgiving. Yes, it's called Not This Turkey, and it's uh, a, a children's illustrated book about a based on truth about a family who celebrated their first Thanksgiving in New York in the 1950s. At the cultural code switching? Yes, yes, yes. You know, uh, I'm... a former, you know, I'm an American and I'm a former New Yorker, but we still celebrate Thanksgiving. It's a very important holiday for me. Yeah, I do. Actually, I do. Uh, just like in, in, in 
diaspora, you do two days of holiday. So I do the second day of Thanksgiving in Israel. Friday. I do Friday night. Yeah. We, we, we don't do anything. It could be partly because we're vegetarian. But, yeah. no, you uh, could do tofu turkey. We could do tofu turkey. Uh, I'm just going to say I'm very machmir that we do our Thanksgiving dinner on uh, Thursday. Right. Well, yeah. does, it help, does it help my credentials if I tell you that we listen to Alice's Restaurant on Friday afternoon at noon? A lot. Okay. Okay. We, we actually do listen to also Alice's Restaurant at one point during that, that weekend. Oh, no, we all gather around and listen at noon. So. so basically it's like Orthodox conservative reform. Is that what the three of us in terms of Thanksgiving? I always really try and think of myself as renewal. Renewal. Okay, that's fair. Or paradox. So why, and why did you pick – we're not Orthodox, we're paradox. Why did, you pick, uh, why did you pick the culture scene when you decided to switch beats? Because I love it. It's kind of what I've always been interested in just in my spare time. And I'm um, I'm – I've found that I have a knack, and I've discovered that knack even more in the last five years. Of I'm, I have a, I have a inkling of looking for things and being able to tell what's going to interest a wide swath of people. Not everyone, and there's no question that my own personal likes and dislikes come into play a lot here. I'm less into trance. I'm more into rock. I'm more into modern dance, less into ballet, and so on and so forth. But. Um, I have a knack for being able to look at what's happening and I am a one person team and say, okay, I'm going to go cover that today and that, you know, that concert tomorrow. And then I, you know, and I write it all up and find a way to also make it interesting for locals who live here, both Hebrew speaking and English speaking. And we're also translated into French and Arabic. Um, and I'm thinking about my audience abroad, you know, the people who are sitting in their, you know, chairs, kitchen, di- you know, dining room, dining room across from the uh, computer and reading this. And they might not never, they might not ever get to this exhibit or to that concert, but this gives them a little bit of a picture of what's going on. So, okay. So now I'm that listener. I'm sitting across from my computer. I don't read that section of times of Israel. We're not even going to have a section. Well, I'm, I'm interspersed among, it's a, a conversation yeah, we keep true. on having. You have to look for me a little yeah, bit. Yeah, that's a great point. Oh, sometimes, well, sometimes it's featured also comes up, like this one oh, about yeah, the Palestinian. Right. No, but it'll be featured, but there's no art section. No. 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 We go back and forth about it. That's funny because website real estate you don't think of as quite as dear as, you know, on a printed paper. So you just would think, well, just make the section. Yeah, I know. Because... Because news, whatever kind of news, is what is put at a premium at the Times of Israel, there's, you know, if, if I have, right, I've, my, uh, an article that went up yesterday is about this director named Hani Abu Assad, who um, is from Nazareth and was trained uh, and studied in, um, in Europe and came back and ended up doing a bunch of different Palestinian based films. Um, Omar, for instance, is a big one, 2014, that was nominated for the foreign language film for the Oscars. And his films had previously all been about uh, Palestinian, Palestinian life and the struggles that they deal with, even though he is from Nazareth. So he's sort of in between. He's an Israeli citizen. Considered an Arab Israeli, we call him, or an, and he's an Israeli citizen, uh, but identifies with the Palestinian struggle. But his latest film, why was why is it up on the news? Because his latest film was A Mountain Beneath Us. Yes, that is the name of it. Um, starring Kate Winslet and Idris Elba, who are two really blockbuster actors these days. It's his first big feature studio film. And it was funny. So when I interviewed him, and I know him now because we've talked through a, a bunch of his movies, he said, well, on one hand, it was totally different because... 
for instance, he needed, he wanted to be able to film this. It's about, it's a two person film essentially. And they're, they're in a plane, a small plane. It crashes. They're stuck on this mountain in the Rockies and they have to make their way back to civilization. And they were two strangers. Um, so he wanted to film, you know, on some mountain swept, icy, in the Rockies, I see mountain in the Rockies. And he said, with a major feature film, you get a helicopter every day that takes you up to the mountain and takes you back down to the hotel the next, you know, that night, which is, he was, you know, cleaning bathrooms in his other movies. You know, he'd be directing and cinematography and everything else. And also making sure that there was, you know, pizza and hummus for everyone to eat at the end of the day. So he said, and when you work with two major actors like these, they know everything. There is no, there's just no crap. There's, you know, they know what they're doing and they ask the questions sometimes before you do. But at the same time, he said it's essentially about a struggle and that's what he likes to make films about struggles, people's struggles. So, so you think, so um, I, I guess what I, what I want you to do is sort of pitch why, why would, why should readers, in other words, what you're describing is this focus on, well, I only want to read the news. Okay. What does that you mean? You only read the news. No, no, I'm saying a hypothetical person who doesn't live here and says, well, I only read, I only interested in news. I'm not interested in the culture section, even though it's not a section. Hard news. So we call hard news. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the politics, the, you know, I want to know what's going on with the Palestinian Israeli conflict, you know? Right. So armies, so anything, anything about the army, anything about politics or diplomacy, that's what they read. Listen, not everyone reads my stuff. Um, But why should they? It depends. You know, I am a person who, while I read the news, the first thing I read when I read the paper in the morning is I actually go to the styles and culture section. That is my personal interest. So there are people like me, and there are people who are not like me. There are stories that I write that have much more impact than others. When I, when I cover uh, a festival, like there is the Oud Festival coming up in Jerusalem, which is I'll tell you what the Oud Festival is, and then I'll answer your question. Well, first, I think we need to tell people what an Oud is. Yeah. Right. So an Oud is... They're hard to play. ...is a Middle Eastern instrument. It is a string instrument. It is looks similar to a guitar. Yeah, it's guitar-ish. It's been played for centuries. Um, And it has had a big comeback because Middle Eastern... And it's had a big comeback not just in Israel, but really all over the world, anywhere... Anywhere in the East, you could say. Um, and so... Not like Ravi Shankar's sitar level comeback, no, but... No, but but big. So big that it's... it's So it's hosted by the Jerusalem Confederation House, which is a performance space in Jerusalem. And they have about, I don't know, 10 days of performances of performers from abroad and performers locally doing all kinds of mashups sometimes. It's like, you know, sort of rock and oud and this and that, and they are sold out. Performances are sold out across the board. Lots of Israelis come from all over the country to come to this oud festival. Now, what was our original question? Why should people read about that? Read about that. Like, why, does it, why should they care? I mean, you know, rocks are being thrown on this street, or yesterday a tunnel was blown up in Gaza, and... You know, seven, seven eight Palestinians. Palestinians were killed. You know, jihad Islami, right. militant terrorists. You know, so why should I go down the culture and read about some Palestinian from Nazareth who made a movie in Hollywood right. or a festival on a fancy guitar? Right. Okay. Fair questions. <laughs> um, what I would say, taking the oud part, the oud festival aspect of it first, is that something that interesting that happens at the oud festival and at lots of other events in Israel is. I'm not going to call it coexistence because that is a term that is sort of moving out of uh, 
the common terminology that we use, but where you have Arabs and Jews uh, playing together. They're not necessarily doing it for the purpose of making peace. They're doing it for the purpose of being familiar with one another, of playing on the same stage and rehearsing before they play on that stage together. And what I hear over and over again from artists of all kinds, for let's say, I'm talking about the Oud Festival, you know, sort of in particular, and let's say Khani Abu Assad and his film. When you have people working together, it normalizes things. It makes you see the other person as just a person. And you might not agree on anything politically, but it gets you a little bit further than if you didn't. And that is something that I have always followed very, very consistently for many, many years, is looking at interactions that can happen and that can be positive. I cover the Oud Festival because it's a very, very popular fest- festival in Israel, and it also shows what Israelis are interested in, which is they are in- mainstream Israelis are interested in this influx of Middle Eastern music into their ears and into the radio and on stage. So that's you know that's another reason why. So it sounds like it gives you a, a sense of who Israelis are and what yeah. is going on in Israel. Beyond right, you have all kinds of different groups interacting. Right, you have people. I'm sure there's also the audiences. The audience is all made up of all kinds of people, ages and types. And it, right, and it gives you a sense of what actually Israel is on a on a on a deeper level than just the conflict. Let's say. Well, if Israel is the Renaissance of the Jewish people, then these cultural steps forward give you a sense of where, what this Renaissance, the the, the Renaissance in Europe, brought a lot of political change, but a lot of its lasting things are the cultural changes and they also are symbolic of the philosophical and political changes the 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 turn to humanity the turn to all sorts of things so if i want to understand in science yeah right leonardo is being like that the perfect renaissance man of the crossover between engineering and technology and science but also art and so so if i want to understand the jewish renaissance going on now and i don't pay attention to the culture then I think I'm missing. And here you have a great example of not only the cosmopolitan nature of the cross-culture, but of the Zionist movement, which was you know, founded by these people with a sort of more European mindset. Ashkenazi. Ashkenazi. Yeah, I mean, it was Ashkenazi Jews who were trying to create a, you know, Tel Aviv is sort of an attempt to create a, a European city in the Middle Odessa. East. Odessa. Yeah. Odessa on the Mediterranean. And, and, and here, here you have this sense going on in Israel of, well, wait a minute, we're in the Middle East. That, how do I pick up on that vibe? Like that's where we live. So and and it, and it, it's a it's a it's not a. I don't think people are consciously saying, well, how, how do I make my musical enjoyment more Middle Eastern? Yeah, right, right. It's, I think- it's just it's 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 what people are interested in hearing. You know, listen, right? I mean, you could go dig down deep into Israeli history and into the fifties and into when the Moroccans and the Yemenites came to Israel and how they were downtrodden for many generations and now they are not. Um, and whether that is true or not, you could go deep with all of that. But for instance, you know, we're talking about oud. So what's another big musical trend um, besides all the rockers and besides all the indie bands, which there are many? Um, Any good? Yeah. Um, Chris, am I, is anyone coming to mind right this second? I'm, it's like when somebody asks you to tell a joke. Totally. I mean, I'm going to say Jane Bordeaux, but now I hear my older stepdaughter saying, no, don't say Jane Bordeaux. Um, there's Awa, Awa, A-W-A, which is a band of three sisters, and they basically took their – here, well, that's actually a great example. They took – they are from a moshav in the deep 
south Negev of Israel from a tiny little village. Which, and do you remember which one or no? Shacharut. Oh. And um, that came to That's mind. Oh. I never even heard of it. And they took their, let's see, they took their grandparents. They are uh, Yemenite. Um, their grandparents came from Yemen. I don't know if their parents did. I don't remember. Um, but they took their grandparents' Yemenite tunes that they were totally familiar with and sang on Shabbat and sang for this and sang for holidays. And they basically kind of hip hop them up. <laughs> and the three sisters dress like in this crazy mix of like Galabia Yemenite traditional dress, but with like tube socks and Adidas sneakers. <laughs> and they're beautiful. They're all in their 20s. And they are traveling, touring the world. Wow. Uh, and you go on YouTube, you can hear them. They had like a few of their songs made it very, very big. And we'll put an attachment on the... Yeah. Oh, will we? Yeah. Tech, tech Al. <laughs> we will. That's always the royal we, as you know. I forgot he's my boss. Shoot. <laughs> and, um, and their stuff is fantastic. And they fill clubs all over the world performing this crazy mashup that people don't... Most people in their audiences don't know that these are Yemenite... Uh, liturgical prayers. Uh-huh. Um, there was a festival a few years ago called Piyut and Roll. Every year. Oh, it's every year? The Piyut Festival is every year. So Piyut and Roll was, it was, it was, it was rock artists performing with the, like yeah. the more traditional Mizrahi right. liturgical music and rocking it up. That was fantastic. Yeah, it's, it's amazing stuff when the younger generation, right, you know, pe- people in their 20s and 30s are taking what they l- heard on their grandparents' knees, essentially, or in shul or at the table, and, and then bringing that and then melding that with the music that they were, that they're listening to, that they've been listening to since their teens, right, um, and making something else out of it. And I mean, that sort of happened with like Ray Charles with gospel music or uh, Johnny Cash with right. Christian hymns. And then it's they sort of tradition. Yeah. It's a long tradition and it makes sense. Yeah. But what's cool about it also is that so there's that there's like the hip hop and rap. But as I always say, my, my mother is not listening to that. <laughs> um, but what she might be listening to are these Andalusian orchestras that are um, there are several of them across the country. And they often will do these performances with other Israeli singers and performers. Like you'll have Yonatan Razel, who's a very famous pianist singer of his own right, uh, lives in Jerusalem, um, from a very musical family. And he performs regularly with one of these Andalusian orchestras, often doing pew team, liturgical prayers, and his music. And they are of the Eastern tradition. And the audience like Alan was saying, is crazy. It's old. It's young. It's, you know, religious. It's secular. And peop- everyone's coming out to hear the same thing f- for different reasons. It's a cross-pollination of, because you have this immigration return from the four corners, the, the, you know, four corners of the earth is the yeah. biblical, you know, idea of it. But it's really happening. And then you're going to have to have this cultural cross-pollination. And that's fascinating to any, I should think. To anyone who's interested in Israel and what it is and where it's going. Right. If you want to really know what Israel's about. If yeah. you really want to know what Israel's about. If you want to just, oh, okay, I like, I like Israel and I want to support it and I know they have these problems, so I want to... Okay, but if you really want to know the heart of what Israelis do, Israelis are thinking, as we say all the time, it, the, the conflict does not 
obsess Israelis on a daily basis. It's not Israel. You know, it's not Israel. You know, it is one issue that we have to deal with, but it's, it's, not, it's not what makes up our daily lives. I always joke with my students. I, it's, it's, it's one of those half jokes where I say, imagine you're going out with somebody and you know like what they want to do for a living, but you don't know what their favorite movie is. Yeah. Right. You know what I mean? Or you don't know what music they listen to. So you don't, I mean, I guess you love them. But you know, if you love somebody, you really obsess over who they are and what they care about and what, and, and if, you, if you love Israel, then what's going on in Israel culturally is so obviously relevant to you. And it's really, it's really reflective of, of where the Jewish people are today. I think um, even, and the influence even Israel's having back on the Jewish communities in the diaspora. Um, uh, in, in many different many different aspects, whether it can be actually really physically, like Israelis who move to diaspora communities and right. then right. bring the culture there, right. um, which happens a lot. Talking, right. Which happens a lot. Do you have a sense? I know that that the Bible has, at least for for decades in Israeli culture, had a major influence on Israeli creativity. Mm-hmm. Is it still? Is it still? I mean, are you give, talking? Give us, a, give us an example. Mike. Oh my goodness. Uh, I mean, there's an endless number of examples of artists performing songs that are a bit like... I was just listening yesterday to uh, Ehud Banai's uh, David and Saul, which is just... He takes he takes the essence of that relationship and makes this beautiful kind of... What would you call that? A rock ballad? I don't know what you'd call it, but it's, yeah. it's just a stunning piece of music. Out of the core, he just zeroes in on the core of that love tension. And that and that's so standard in Israeli music that I wonder is that still going yeah. on? Um, of course, I'm. It's like niggling at me. I feel no, like don't you think the exactly what you were saying before? The the shift to the piyut is kind of the more right. There's that the shift to the piyut, the liturgical poems. I think the banais. Just to sort of give a little intro, who doesn't for anyone who doesn't is not familiar with them. They are a uh, a family of cousins, um, several generations now. Who are performers? There were there were actors, and and there's Orna Banai. She's a, she's a comedian, and then there's several um, brothers and cousins who are now we're in the third generation of the Banai musicians. Several of them have returned to being religious. Um, but well, Aviatar really, it's Aviatar. religious music, right? Aviatar does religious music. Aviatar just performed at the Mikudeshet Festival in the Tower of David. Uh, museum, this beautiful sunset concert, and again, a a very mixed audience of ages and types, and everyone's rocking down, and he's on stage in his seat singing a lot of very religious music, but because it it also has the sound of a rock ballad, yeah, it probably does make it a little bit easier. But of course, when you're dealing with Israelis. Everyone and everyone studies Tanakh in school. Everyone, everyone studies the Bible in school to some extent. There's a lot of familiarity. So even if you're not approaching the music from a religious standpoint, you know what you know what his source is. It's culturally relevant. Yes, it's you're cultural. taking a cultural touchstone that everyone shares and expanding on it. Which I think is actually to point out what you just said. Flush out because I think a lot of people. I know my family always had a hard time. I think they still do grasping this idea that when our kids learn history. In school, part of that history is is biblical history. You know that is actually a normal subject. It's not right. We're not talking about the religious schools. We're not talking about. It's a normal subject that kids are actually tested on in their, you know, in uh, high school history lessons. (laughs) I I guess what I'm wondering is because you do see this because 
you know, early in, 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 even before there was a state, there was this turning against diaspora culture. Like Ben-Gurion didn't want to hear any Yiddish. And then what was it like in the 90s when Chava Alberstein started doing albums in Yiddish of old Yiddish songs where Israel in its old, it's still a young country, but as it got older, it started saying, well, no, we have a whole diaspora heritage. We're going to relate to this. We're going we're gonna to think about it. Right. So Ladino and Pew team, but also Yiddish and, and folk, that folk music gets embraced. And eating solent on, on, you know, I'm going to say Saturday mornings in Tel Aviv, there's a lot of cafes that serve solent. Because and to people who are not going to synagogue and not observing Shabbat, but they're going to eat their cholent on Shabbat morning, which also ties into the 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 I think developing phenomenon of secular bate midrash, secular study halls where they learn Torah in a non or I guess an a religious context. And since we can't, I can't let the text thing go. I think it's also the revival again, not just among religious but non religious circles of of Hasidic texts, which is a purely. You know, um, exile. You could say Torah, um, but it's hugely popular today. And and uh, and rabbinic text also. It yeah. turned to study midrash and things oh, that, that that the early Zionists are fascinated by the Bible, but nothing, none of the diaspora literature and culture. And Israel's now turning to to reclaim and build on because that's what you do, right? Like like you take you take the canon. And you expand. Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead or wicked. or uh, No, it's also a natural process because there was a little bit – no, not a little bit. There was a very overtly thing that needed to happen in terms of this move back home of re-embracing an earlier culture of the uh, – you know, we talk about it in Zion's class of the of the teul, the trip that's so important of hiking the land, of getting to know the land. The Zion's, the Zion's, you have to re- reintroduce yourself to your home and to your land. And then when I think we became more confident in that, you're able to go back and start – Integrating and absorbing this this diaspora culture, which also you know is a very important part of who we are, and now integrating it you know yeah. in, in our lives. I'll take the sort of going off on a little bit of a tangent. The the teul, the the land, the the connection to the land is also a very important theme that I examine and explore over and over. So, for instance, um, I'm thinking of two kind of very very different examples. Uh, I used to, a little bit less now, I used to write a lot about Israeli fashion, the Israeli fashion industry, which has developed in the last 25 years, really, um, with some very successful designers who sell abroad and um, lots of stores, a very flourishing industry. Not easy, but flourishing. I was going to make a stupid joke about yeah. selling abroad and being... Yeah, rat, rat, rat. So I didn't make the joke. I just want that on the So Close something enough. that happened... <laughs> Something that happened in the earlier years, I'd say like eh, 10, 15 years ago, was a lot of designers were, what were they doing? They were sort of going to their grandmother's closets and kind of looking through to see what their grandmothers were wearing in the 30s and 40s. And uh, not so much, you know, the Kova Temple, that funny little hat. But Although I see that around again. I think there's like an, I don't know if it's like an ironic thing that young probably. people are wearing it as well. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, kind of taking whether it was the European stuff that their grandmothers came with from Europe or what they wore on the kibbutz and taking that and making something new out of it because they felt very tied to that history. Right. So there's that. And then the other example I was going to give was because Israelis do – listen, Israelis travel the world a lot, as we all know, but they also travel Israel a lot. Um, when, when it's like a holiday period or a vacation period or just a Shabbat, uh, people will go on a hike. 
They might, they might also go with their Jeep, but they will also go on a hike and they will also, and they'll, and they'll go camp out somewhere. Um, and a lot of Israelis will take touches of that. It could be the desert. Israelis love the desert. Um, it could be the flowers of a certain season. You know, go, everyone goes crazy about um, in the spring when the spring flowers come out. And they'll take elements of that. And whether they're a painter or a designer or a lighting, a, a lighting designer, they will take elements of that and work that into what they do. And they are, it's something that revolves and comes back all the time, this connection to the land and how it plays into what they do now. I would also say, like in terms of music, you also see that the, the the Zionist movement is long enough after 120 years that you have artists not only plumbing the diaspora things, but plumbing early like Habilu <laughs> Habiluim or yeah. other groups that plumb early Zionist culture and build new things out of that, exploring it sometimes ironically, sometimes in challenging ways, but very interesting ways. Whatever happened to them? I don't know. The Biluim. Yeah. What happened to them? I don't know. It's true. Now you're kind of. Now I'm curious. They were awesome. Uh, so Jess, I was just thinking we're sort of moving uh, along here, running. Uh, but yeah, um, what's the coolest part of your job? Oh, everyone always says I have the best job. I do have a good job. It is a pretty cool job. Yeah, um, I get to go travel and see cool places and new hotels and new resorts and you know, just new locations. Um, and kind of be on the cutting edge of that. that that's a very relaxing part of my job. Um, I get to, I do a lot of food stuff because food is so huge. The foodie industry, as we call it, the culinary. Um, so I get to talk to a lot of chefs. And that, I mean, that's another area, right, where Israelis are plumbing the resources of the country. You know, the whole farm to table thing, it's like a very obvious thing in Israel where a lot of, I'm going in a very different direction here, but a lot of... You are and you're not. I mean, this is really the same. Yeah. Right. So Israel is... The Israeli food, even the supermarkets, everyone really runs along the seasonal, the seasonal produce here. Um, it's not that we don't have things being trucked in from the Negev or from the north, um, as you might in the States, but the distances are a lot shorter. And it's very, very common to have... Uh, a restaurant that has its own that has its 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 own uh, garden, its own vegetable garden, or that gets it from right. half an hour away because right, they have a connection with a local grower. Exactly, uh, eucalyptus, an organic yeah, yeah, yeah. garden, right? So what you see with Israeli chefs is pretty phenomenal. I mean, there's the famous ones like Otto Lengi and Ayal Shani, who's a master chef and um, who has this TV show and restaurants all over the world. Or a Michael Solomonov, if you guys, anyone here from Philly? Philly. I, um, I, just read, I just read that article. There was an article in Times of Israel about the a new bakery right. in Philly, Essen. Right. But they mentioned him in so it. So Michael Solomonov is like, he is, a, he is a pioneer in this. He's a guy whose parents are Israeli and lived in the States for a while and then came back to Israel. And he had a younger brother who was a lone soldier and who was killed in his last month of army service. Michael is a very successful restaurateur in Philadelphia with restaurants that are Israeli in themes. Zahav is the big one. He also has one in New York and a bunch of others in Philly. But he comes to Israel, I don't know, like every six weeks, basically. His food is Israeli. He is bringing the Israeli table to the American dining experience. And something that's it, sometimes it seems obvious. You know, you, you, of course you throw pomegranate seeds in September and October into your salads. But... 
It's not. It's not so obvious. It's obvious on a lot of Israeli tables and in your average home kitchen. Because the because produce in Israel follows the seasonal um, production calendar, thank you. Uh, yeah, so you have that. And then in the winter, you have, you know, more potatoes. And pumpkins are actually coming out in the summer. And, uh, and you know, sort of take your pick of what's out there. And cucumbers and tomatoes are always, because Israelis can't live without their cucumbers and tomatoes. And there's this big emphasis on fresh. Everything should be fresh. Even in Aroma, which is, you know, like the local Starbucks, but way better. Um, <laughs> the... We, I always joke that the kitchen at Aroma, where you get sandwiches and salads in addition to your coffee or your icy drinks, the, it's, a, it's an Israeli kitchen where people get massive salads with chickpeas and chopped hard-boiled eggs and their cucumbers and tomatoes because that is what Israelis eat. And these Israeli chefs have learned how to take that and bring it to the table of many. Well, it's another aspect of the, of the geographical, cultural – that's very Mediterranean where freshness yeah. is the most important ingredient – Strong, fresh, you know, strong flavored, fresh ingredients. That's very Mediterranean. Uh, and I would even say for us personally, like I don't have, there's not a more Ashkenazi house than my house. We are very Ashkenazi. And I like my herring on Chabas. <laughs> but it's not Chabas without, without hummus. My wife has been right. making hummus for a very long time now. And it's not Chabas without hummus. And there's nothing wrong with herring. You know what I mean? Like that's also part of our, herring what is, we're bringing. It's huge now. Are you yeah. kidding? It's herring huge in Israel. Right. Boutique herring. Yeah. But who would have thought, you know, we would have ever had hummus in our house. And, and by the way, when I go to Poland with groups in Krakow on Shabbos, you may not have gefilte fish, but you will have hummus and tahina and or tahina. You have hummus or tahina, but you may not have, because all these groups that go and these caters are catering to the Israeli palate. Right. They're making hummus and they're making fresh hummus, by the way, there. And it's very good. Which is so funny. Yeah. Which is just so funny. Listen, right. Tahina, I was going to say tahini, um, yeah. is right. another, uh, another ingredient that has exploded bloated worldwide, or very much in the States. Um, and a lot of it comes, again, from the Israeli kitchen because tchina can be used for savory and it can be used for sweet. Mm-hmm. You know, you make your cookies, you make your chalva, and you make your tchina dressing, and you put it on your roasted carrots in addition to your cucumber and tomato salad. And so. just dipping. And just so can dipping. we close by putting you on the spot? Yeah. Either or, or both. Something that you think is going on now that's like just so cool and enjoyable that you would recommend it or, and uh, something that if, if I, let's say I'm one of those listeners who is saying, you know, it's true. I only, I really only connect to the news, the conflict stuff and the hard news. I kind of want to weigh in. What's a good way for me to start, you know, entering into Israeli culture, whether, whatever the, whatever the art form is, how do I, how do I bridge the gap where I, I just don't feel like I have an a- entry point? I'd say there's a lot of different, I think there's a a few different ways depending on what your own personal interests are. We've talked about a lot of them. You know, if food is your thing, that's easy. You know, you can either crack open a cookbook if you're a home cook, uh, you know, pick Otolenghi or Eyal Shani or um, I'm looking at my cookbook shelf over there. Um, Okay, but, you know, literally just Google Israeli chef cookbook and you'll come up with at least half a dozen if not a, a full dozen. So there's that. Or go eat at an Israeli rest, you know, go eat at a restaurant with an Israeli chef of which there are many literally all over the states. Um, if movies are your thing, 
There are always Israeli film festivals, and that's a good way to... Re- and they're very cutting-edge film festivals all over the States because I go and speak at them sometimes, and they're showing what is being shown, you know, what has been made in the last year. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and there's, there's always an Israeli film almost every single year that is nominated for a foreign language film at the Oscars, and that tells you a lot also. Of course, it's Israeli TV, right? Mm-hmm. <coughs> Excuse me. We had Homeland. That's not quite done, but almost done, based on the Israeli show, uh, based on his Chatufim. Um, there is some much light, more light, light-hearted fare. I'm sort of thinking uh, a big, big show that has not had its second season yet. It's called Shtisel, um, which is about an Israeli ultra-orthodox family, and it's excellent if you haven't watched it, and it's available with subtitles. So that's another way you could sort of make your way in. I always say to people, go watch movies because they're great. We're now into Kipat Barzel, the, the, about an um, uh, ultra-Orthodox unit in the army. Yes, the way, that is also an excellent – it depends what you like watching. You know, like I'm kind of a rom-com person, so you know, it's got to be a little lighter for me. Homeland is scary. Or, of course, uh, hello, uh, Fauda, which um, Avi Issachar writes for the Times of Israel, and he and his writing partner – have uh, who is also the star of the show, and they have their um, on their second season already of Fauda, which is terrifying but absolutely excellent. Okay, so those are like a few ways. You like clothing? Um, Israeli designers. Ronan Chen's been around for twenty five years and makes great. This is for women. Uh, there are there are Israeli male uh, men designers, uh, men's clothing, but n- less, and they're not as international. But, you know, if that's something that's into you, go. There's lots of boutiques. There's lots of online websites. There's also lots of Israeli designers on Etsy, you know, doing all kinds of cool crafts and jewelry and, you know, just look for the Israeli names. Um, What else have we talked about? Music. Oh, hello. Music. Okay. So there's a lot of Israeli musicians who travel. Um, There's the the Banais that we talked about. Um, Eviatar Banai, for instance, is a younger one. He kind of does sort of more hard rock, heavy metal-ish, if that's what you're into. There's hip-hop. We were talking about Ewa. They travel all over the world all the time. Um, There's uh, the Collective, a Collective. They're kind of cool. There's someone I'm thinking of who I cannot think of his name right now, and he does this very cool kind of video-ish stuff, sound, and maybe I'll come on another time and remember who he is. Um, um, Who else am I thinking of that travels a lot? I mean, there's, you know, there's the more traditional, and there's a lot of indie guys out there, a lot of indie musicians, Israeli musicians who are out there and who... On the one hand, they perform tremendous amounts in Israel because that is their home base, and they all want to get, they want all want to go abroad, and they're all starting to sing in English. Um, I'm thinking of someone named Hagar Levy. She sounds like Tori Amos, and she is excellent. She's actually originally Belgian, but grew up in Israel, so she sings in, mostly in English and a little bit in Hebrew, and she's got this great jazzy sound. She's a pianist. She's awesome. And then there's Yonatan Razel who's also a, an incredible pianist and sings much more Jewish religious music, but his, not but, I mean, his compositions are excellent and soulful and... Um, and his YouTube. You don't have to even go and to he's, and these, these guys are all on YouTube. They are all on YouTube. Um, I could go on and on. Right. So if music is your thing, Israeli musician, Google that, YouTube that, and you'll find a lot. And I think that's... I could go on for a long time. Right. <laughs> 
I'm just thinking that this takes us in far days from Ramah Pocono's radio uh, radio room where Jessica was the uh, Roach Radio back in 1989. <laughs> yeah, where you know a little bit different kind of recording now. Just a little. <laughs> I had turntables then. Yeah, I did, and that's where we started. <laughs> Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. We'll we'll put links to some of the references. I don't know how many of them I'll be able to put up links for. But other and other ways to as well as your byline on the right. Times of Israel so people can keep track and read more. Thank you really so much. Thank you. This has been fun. Yeah, yeah it was fun. Thanks, Alan. Thank you. Uh that's it guys. Talk to you soon. Bye bye. This has been JU Israel, the Teachers Lounge Podcast. Please check out our website, juisrael.jerusalemu.org, for episodes, blog posts, and contact information. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever you use for podcasts. But you knew that, right? Uh, You can follow our Facebook page at the Teacher's Lounge Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at juisraelgap. Please keep in touch with us with questions, comments, feedback, and suggestions. And... If you know somebody who would enjoy our podcast in general or an episode in particular, we love it when people recommend us. Thank you, guys. Mm-hmm.